0: Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, That bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's take it together. Well, hello and we are back with yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcasts. We are continuing our study in Ecclesiastes and we are crossing the halfway point of the book. We've been in Ecclesiastes probably since I think September or August. And uh, we're clearing chapter 6 of 12, so we are clicking away piece by piece through this incredible book that is very challenging, very very thought-provoking, a book that some of us sometimes get kind of intimidated by, but it's been good. And we are coming to chapter 6, and let me preface this by saying chapter 6 is hard. This is not an easy text this is not a fun text this is not the passage you read at weddings Um, it's a hard text but as i've seen in previous portions of ecclesiastes the hard parts have been really really good and so without further ado let us read chapter six of ecclesiastes and it says here is a tragedy i have observed under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor, so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile, or hevel. This is vanity. This is vapor, and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, but no matter how long he lives, he is not satisfied by good things, and does not even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for he comes in futility, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun, and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person, who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better that what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is hevel and a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of this futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what, hap- what will happen after him under the sun? As I said, this is not a fun passage, but um, here we are. So let's, let's break that down piece by piece, and let's see what God shows us through these hard words. And what we've seen with the last couple installations of Ecclesiastes is Solomon is hammering all these nails into the coffin of wealth. This has been a uh, multifaceted excursus on the hevelity, the vaporousness of wealth. And he attacks it from different angles. Um, similar to the previous message uh, that kind of builds off of some of those ideas. But he put it in con- contrast with the idea of a family last week, we saw. And he seems to be doing that as well here. Um, we saw in chapter 5, 13, There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. Here in verse 6, Uh, chapter 6, verse 3, a man may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things, and does not even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And that again, we have this family aspect that's being introduced here, I think for means of comparison. And the preceding verses in chapter 6 paint for us a picture that some of us are familiar with. Here is a tragedy. That, that seems to be a key word here in this portion of Ecclesiastes, this tragedy. We've seen this quite a few times. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. So it's bookended by this word tragedy. In an age of economic exploitation, where the rich stay rich, where the poor stay poor, regardless of case-by-case circumstances, we can relate to what Solomon is illustrating because this is very much the world we live in. The rigging of the economic landscape is something many of us feel the effects of very deeply. That's something that very much persists in the 21st century. And once again, we are reminded where the good things come from through this illustration. Deuteronomy 8, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and are full, and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, Be careful that your heart does not become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. And he brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which which your ancestors had not known, in order to humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant he swore to your ancestors. As it is today, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will certainly perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. Deuteronomy is laden with language of hearing and obeying, of reaping and sowing. And uh, Paul incites some of that language in Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For the, for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corrupt, corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the Spirit reap life, and life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto unto them who are of the household of faith. To not be satisfied with good things, as Solomon describes here. Ultimately, that comes back on the providence of God, because ultimately good things come from the hand of God. So to not be satisfied with good things is to to be dissatisfied with the God who gives them. Psalm 42 says, As the deer, as the heart, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirst, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Is that a prayer we can pray? Is that, is that the attitude of our hearts? Is that the inclination of my heart? As we pursue worldly success, that is the caveat, that we are not God. That we are not the ultimate provider. Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. So whatever we do in this world, we are bound by our reliance on God, the maker of heaven and earth. And in a world constantly seeking more, we as Christians have a God who shows us that there is enough. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that that's, uh, that's the King James language, which uh, sounds a little weird to our modern ears, but that phrase, I shall not want, um, the word want had to do with suffering need. So I shall not suffer need. Um, John Calvin notes, God gently draws us to himself by his good gifts to us, giving us a taste of his sweetness as our father. But nothing is so easy for us as to forget him We are enjoying peace and comfort. We ought then to attend most carefully to the example set by David. David, raised to a king's throne, possessing ample wealth and great honors, testifies in the midst of the pleasures of his court that he remembers God and is mindful of the benefits which God has conferred upon him. And he makes of them ladders by which he may climb nearer to God. And I want to preface that by saying... Long story short, David does forget the Lord his God, much like the Israelites, and that is um, ironic given the nature of Psalm 23 that eventually David did not live this Psalm because David was every bit as wretched and sinful as the rest of us. David forgot the Lord his God and those curses that are in Deuteronomy. That forgetting the Lord your God leads to death they became real to him maybe not in the sense that he died instantly but he did not reap the benefits of being of abiding in God when he was not abiding in God Deuteronomy chapter 4 says now therefore hearken O Israel unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you for to do them that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor, the, the false gods. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God, are alive every one of you this day. Deuteronomy 4.4 is one of my favorite verses in scripture. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God, are alive every one of you this day. And I quote the King James there for its use of the word cleave. That is language that invokes marital intimacy. In the same way that um, Jesus said a, a man cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. The daughter of Zion, the bride of Christ, the Israel of God, cleaves unto their God and finds life. Ambrose of Milan uh, wrote, If therefore the union of Adam and Eve is a great sacrament which relates to Christ and the church, it is certain that as Eve was bone of the bones for husband and flesh of his flesh, so we are members of the body of Christ, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Ambrose calls marriage a sacrament, trying to point out that marriage holds a deeper spiritual meaning than we often give it. God created marriage in the garden. That Whatever this thing called marriage is, it means something. And it's not just two people. It's bigger than that, that this is an allegory of something God is teaching us. A right view of marriage brings us to a right view of God, because it is an allegory for our relation to him. The Old Testament is loaded with marriage allusions um, in some of the prophets. Um, Hosea builds on this a lot, likening Israel to a promiscuous wife. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive every one of you this day. And you might look at what we've talked about so far and thought, we're going to end on a high note. But alas, Solomon is not finished. I say a stillborn child is better off than he. Whoa. For he comes in futility, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun, and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? all of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. These are brave words that have eluded people far more learned than me. But I will do my best as well as I can. Um, Job contains a similar sentiment in chapter 3. While, why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? in the 1990s there was a big philosophical shift known as nihilism it wasn't it wasn't new it was much much older but it became very prevalent in the 90s this idea of nihilism it comes from uh, the uh, the latin for nihilo and ism is you know the doctrine or the frame of thought so it's a, basically a doctrine of nothing and the big thing in the 90s with a lot of movies and music and just the way it Things got discussed is that nothing really matters. It is nothing is of consequence. There's not some being in the sky that's that um, gives a rip about you There is no afterlife all you have is here and now so do as you please and in a vaporous world as Solomon describes It nothing seems to matter And to be a child who died in the womb, who never experienced the injustice and the corruption, seems like a better experience. And again, that is a sentiment we can relate to, because that is very much our world sometimes. I've seen signs that say, I wish my mom aborted me. Sometimes this world really stinks. Um, Herman Melville once wrote, No utter surprise can come to him who reaches Shakespeare's core. That which we seek and shun is there. Man's final lore. At the core of Shakespeare's writing, says Melville, is the thing we both seek and the thing we avoid. Man's final lore. Man's final chapter. Death. The end. The end of things. Why? Because we are so focused on the here and now, that we have... It's so easy to fall into that trap of nihilism that all I have is right now. And so whatever I do doesn't really matter. There's not accountability. There's not consequence. Um, This is whatever I think is worthy of the short time that I have. And this world is largely not good, which feeds that notion. Government, economics, war, all these things tell us this in all caps, that the world is not good, that this world is fraught with problems that flow from wretched hearts. Solomon continues, all of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage, then, does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This, too, is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that six feet of dirt make all men equal. What advantage then does the wise have over the fool? Because we're all going to the same place. So why not live this way as opposed to that way? Why not um, try to make myself happy by any means necessary here? Why not go here? Why not pursue that? James chapter 4 says, for what is your life? It is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. That is the the problem of Ecclesiastes, is vapor. That life is, everything is vanity. Everything is hevel. Vapor. Everything is like smoke. It's here one moment, gone the next. I'm not talking I'm not talking fear tactics and some of this. This is just reality. In comparison with what is beyond death, this is a very small portion. And whether we believe in an afterlife or not, we have this recognition that the time we have is very short. That's something that is built into us. To the point that the medievals as we as I said last week um, had a phrase memento mori remember you must die that you' you're in your in eternality the fact that we have a a death date should be wired into how we operate because remember you must die Ecclesiastes 610. Trucking along, Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is, but he is not able to contend with the ones stronger than he, for when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life, in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen to him under the sun? Again, we have that word futile, or hevel, and when we live in this vaporous world, when we live for this vaporous world, the point is absent. Why would I devote my very being to something that will not endure when the soul of man shall never die? The Westminster Confession of Faith writes that after god made all other creatures he created man male and female with reasonable and immortal souls endued with knowledge righteousness and true holiness after his own image having the law of god written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and yet under a possibility of transgression of transgressing being left to the liberty of their own will which was subject unto change so god made man god made people with reasonable and immortal souls. That is that he put something in them that is permanent, something that does not pass away like vapor. And we were were made perfect. We were made sinless. But because of outside circumstances, because of sin, because of that thing called free will, Adam and Eve Chose sin. They were fully capable in that state of perfection, capable to sin, but also capable not to sin. And when they did sin, it altered everything. And so this picture was defaced by sin. But the, the work of Christ brings us back home, brings us back to the Garden. Last week we talked about Memento Mori, Remember You Must Die. But this week, I say, memento vitae, remember, you must live. Let's consider how we come home. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you are following along in a Bible. Verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what that law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh God did, He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their mindset on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the the flesh is hostile to God, because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life. Because of righteousness, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So, what was broken by sin, that barrier that was up, has been taken down by the work of Christ on the cross. That Christ came down. Lived a perfect life. A sinless life. kept the whole law. Very much lived the life that you and I can't live. And he died an undeserved death. In the place of sinners. Intentionally. That what the law. What our attempts to be good couldn't do. God did. That what changed moral behavior couldn't do. God did. In order that. Goodness could exist in us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. That, that what God has called good can be found in his people again. Not because of what we do, but because of what God did. Because of what God puts in us. He in, imbues us with the ability to be what we were not. And so we go into this world as the ransom people of God, people who have placed their faith in Christ, who, was, who died in the place of sinners, was buried, and rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering evil. But there are still pangs, there are still remnants in this world of evil. Not because he, he failed to do so, but because he is breaking it apart it apart piece by piece there's going to come a day where there's nothing left. Jumping down to verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons, that is, all of us who are in Christ, to be revealed. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan with ourselves eagerly, waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen, that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This imbuing of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling of God's Spirit within us, the life of God in the soul of the man, that is the beginning, that is the first fruits of this coming dawn. The prophet spoke of a coming day of the Lord, a final judgment for sin. Amos chapter five, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bid him. It is not the day of the Lord darkness it is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. That was the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But as believers on this side of the cross, we see something coming that was eluded by the prophets, but we have a bigger picture of what that looks like, a new creation. The Jews had inklings of a coming redemption, but we see that redemption in motion. If we are in Christ, it is happening before our very eyes. It started with us and it, it will work its way out. Because, this, because he is making all things new. 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are, be t- are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And when it says new heavens, new earth, we, we, we see that Greek word kainos, which means a new kind. The world that is coming is of a new kind. It's an improvement on our current living condition. Um, Derek Thomas sums it up in this way. Both individual Christians and the world itself are to be remade. The cosmos share a future along with believers. How could it be any other way? What environment, after all, could glorified believers with new resurrected bodies occupy other than a physical one? It stands to reason that a new world must be created for us to dwell in in what sense will that world be new? Will it be altogether new, having no link with the old? No, it will be new in the sense of being renewed. Both Peter and John speak of this new environment employing the Greek word kainos rather than neos suggesting that the new universe stands in some measure of continuity with the present one creation de- debates among christians often stop short over issues relating to the age of the earth and the length of creation days and sometimes amid the maelstorm, we lose sight of the greater truth god intends to create a new heaven and a new earth god is going to regenerate creation paradise is going to be restored. Luke 20, 23, And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that Greek word is paradisio, which in the Greek translations of the Old Testament means Eden. The, the word Eden, as we see it, appears in the Septuagint as that same word paradisio. So we could otherwise translate that line from Christ as you will be with me in Eden. This world is vapor, says Solomon. But Peter says this world will will dissolve and be made new. And that world will not be vapor that world will last forever the new creation is coming and all of us who are in christ will come home 1st corinthians chapter 15 there is a splendor of the sun another of the moon and another of the stars in fact one star differs from another star in splendor so it is with the resurrection of the dead sown in corruption raised in incorruption sown in dishonor raised in glory sown in weakness raised in power sown a natural body raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body so it is written the first man adam became a living being the last adam became a living became a life-giving spirit however the spiritual is not first but the natural then the spiritual the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. In closing, get to know the second man, the last Adam the firstborn of creation and the firstfruits of the resurrection, the one of whom all the people of God are co-heirs and by whom they shall all be made new, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds, united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4-4.